welcome to the I Believe podcast, a podcast created and funded by Acure Insight. Here, we'll be sharing information and insights on treatment, research, and living with ocular melanoma. Thanks for joining us today, and I hope you'll be back soon. I have with me Ashley McCrary. She is someone who is a little bit, I think, more well-known, at least as I came into the ocular melanoma world. She seems like kind of a name that is recognized um, because she is part of the Auburn cluster. And so she's part of a group of patients that kind of all went to school together or to the same school. And they found out over the course of years that they all got diagnosed with the same cancer. Um, Mm -hmm. And I know at some point in your journey, you guys did a ton of research to try and figure out if there was some link. And so far that research, as far as I understand, has been inconclusive, right? Yes. Well, there's still um, so frustrating. It can be frustrating. They're still actually working on it now. We, That's good. Um, so yeah, I can I can go into that in a few minutes when you whenever you want me to. Okay, um, perfect. Well, with you. let's start with let's just kind of start to the beginning. Like, where were okay. you in life when you were first diagnosed with ocular melanoma? Yeah, I um, I was 42 years old and lived in Memphis, Tennessee at the time. I live in Auburn, Alabama now, and um, I most people who know my story know that I had. Um, gone to the beach with some friends who actually saw the um, a spot on my iris, and um, I, I'm embarrassed to tell you I came home. I didn't do anything about it. About a month goes by, and I my husband worked for an oncology group in Memphis at the time, and we had been invited to a dinner at one of the doctor's houses, and his um, one of the wives there also saw the spot on my eye. Um, to make a long story short, I he, that her husband said you need to go have that checked out and looked at. And so that week, I tried to make an appointment, but it was going to be like three weeks later. So I, part of my story that I like sharing with people today is that um, I I ended up going to Target that week, and I saw a Vision Works on the corner, and saw a, a sign that said, you know, free eye exam. So I hopped into the little Vision Works and saw this delightful young lady who did this eye exam, but she didn't notice the spot on my eye. And like, you know, in, in that circumstance where that's a, a great place to get glasses, it's not a good place to go get um, a, an eye exam. And and so anyway, she was wonderful, though. I know that God put her in my path for a reason because she got me in with who I needed to see, which was Dr. Matthews in Memphis. Um, when I went there and had all the normal tests, like I'm sure you had done, they came in and they originally thought it was an iris melanoma. And then he sent me to Dr. Matt Wilson who a lot of people know and people in the Southeast do go see him in Memphis. He, um, he obviously treats adults, but he sees a lot of the children at St. Jude. So when I went to see him, um, he did, you know, the ultrasound in my eye. I don't know if you had that done, but that was a crazy experience. Um, very trippy feeling, I feel like. Very, yeah, very weird feeling. And of course took a bunch of, of pictures and came in and he said, this is not an iris melanoma. It's actually, I have a ciliary or had a ciliary body melanoma but it was so large and had grown in such an awkward shape that he said it wasn't, I wasn't a candidate for um, radiation because he was like, it was just too big. And so um, I got a second opinion at Emory actually, and came back and decided to have my eye enucleated. Um, both doctors agreed that just the shape of it was one that the, the plaque radiation wouldn't be able to get the whole thing. Mm-hmm. So I ended up having my eye enucleated um, and that was nine years ago in August of 2012. Um, yes, but right at that time, um, the castle, you know, test had come out and I was able to find out very early on some of my, um, 
genetic markers. And I did know that I was a class two uh, or it was a class two tumor, but that's really about the extent of what I knew. Um, but I knew enough at the time to know that I needed to stay on top of my surveillance. So I um, originally had scans every four months. I did that for six years and then I moved to a six month surveillance um, up until October of this past year. And, and okay. obviously was metastatically free for, for eight years. That's amazing. Um, okay. Obviously we're going to cover starting last year shortly, but I do want to go back just real fast and just cover, yeah. because I know this is, I feel like this is just a, it's a big, a big thing that happens. Mm-hmm. And I know this was long ago and you've since then kind of, in, you've, you've experienced this trauma, but then you've also experienced the next level of trauma. Um, mm-hmm. So if you can just kind of, kind of put yourself back in, you know, nine years ago when you were first diagnosed and you know, officially got the opinion that you would need to have your eye enucleated. Um, what was your kind of, what was your gut instinct reaction? Like, were you? Mm, that's a tricky one. So, um, this is kind of a tender thing. I don't know about you when you were a little girl or whatever, but one of the things that for me as a little girl, um, and it's kind of a funny story within our family, but, um, one of my defining features, my family would say, would be my eyes. If you were to meet my father, he's got um, beautiful, both my parents have pretty eyes, but my dad has got really long eyelashes. And I can remember being told even at three and four years old, you have your daddy's eyes and you have your daddy's eyes. And I can remember when Dr. Wilson told me, I mean, he was very matter of fact, it was, I mean, I don't know how you tell somebody um, that they have cancer and they're going to have to have their eye removed and it'd be a, a good conversation. I was yeah. devastated. I, I can remember literally I was standing up and like kind of not falling, but falling back against the wall and being like, have my eye removed. Are you kidding me? I, um, I was completely shocked. And um, the remarkable thing, and I think for me too, I, you know, you go six to eight weeks without an eye and um, you have to wear a patch. And I, I think that was another thing that was really hard for me um, is I was very busy. I have four children. My yeah. oldest was a, a junior in high school, and then my second was a freshman, then a seventh grader, and a second grader. And so this was a really busy time, driving and carpool, and all of my kids were involved in sports and church and music, and, you know, it was just a crazy time. And so to not be able to drive for a little while, um, to have to wear a patch and and I, I can remember just feeling like, oh, I can't wait to get rid of the patch so I can just have some normalcy and people not stare at me all the time and that kind of thing. I had fun with it though, Danae. Like I'm I'm one who I like a little levity. Um back then I, I can remember monogramming was a real big thing and I would monogram my <laughs> patches and I blinged them out. I, I kinda had fun with it. But at the time to answer your question. Um, it was, it was a very tricky time for me. Um, I will tell you, I, I was a speech therapist and worked in a hospital in a medical setting at that time. And I actually, um, to feel confident about driving, I saw an occupational therapist and went to this little driving school for a little bit so that I would feel confident driving. And, and that really helped me. And, um, I think the, you know, mine is on my right eye. So, um, my blind side it, it is, is pretty significant. And I remember that being my biggest concern um, was that. I think the other thing that was hard for me at that time is um, I was very positive, even though the I knew that my, I was told that my 
Castle test that that was the worst outcome I could have as being a class two. But I was very positive that I thought I really want to use this as um, as a way to to be um, maybe positive in the lives of other people. And my faith was is really important to me. It was very important to me too at that time. So being able to kind of walk through this with um, with grace and humility and, and and whatnot was very important to me. So anyway, all that to say that um, that I, I really kind of bounced back kind of quickly. I ended up going to work within three weeks wearing my patch. I um, didn't miss a game, didn't miss an event. Um, just thought that I'm just going to, it's going to be okay. My family was a huge support, both my sisters and kids and husband, who's amazing. And um, we just kind of bounced back after that. <laughs> yeah, no, for sure. I feel like it's, I just feel like it's really important to just validate like that the initial shock and the initial, like what things happen, yes. you, you can get to a place where you're comfortable and you're confident and you're okay, you know, but yes. before you, before you get there, it's a journey and yes. that journey, it looks different for everyone. People find support mm-hmm. in different ways. Um, so I love that you shared like that your faith has been supportive, that your, uh, your family was oh, supportive yeah. and mm-hmm. just that really that you kind of took this on. Um, I mean, for lack of a better term, like you took this by the horns and you just said, no, like, I'm not, yeah. I'm not going to let this keep me back. Um, I'll tell you too. And I was now very... you can't even tell. Like, I mean, I would, <laughs> I, I didn't even know that you had had your eye enucleated and just looking at you now, like I can't tell. I would tell you um, two things. One, the, the person who was my ocularist, Bob Thomas, um, he's phenomenal. He does all, you can imagine how many children go to St. Jude who have eye cancer and have to have prosthetic eyes. And I can remember sitting down with him and him saying, you know what I get to do today? I get to copy what the God of the universe made. And he hand painted my eye to look like my other eye. And it's just phenomenal. My husband was involved. My best friend at the time, Martha, was involved in actually making my eye, which is kind of fun. They put the veins on there. It was a really cool experience. But the other thing that was cool and unusual, and this would probably segue us into the Auburn thing, is um. Like I had a, a lady on Facebook yesterday that she said, you know, I don't know anybody who has ocular melanoma. I was just diagnosed and I don't know what to do and I don't know where to turn and that kind of thing. I didn't have that. Um, I knew two girls very well who had ocular melanoma who both went to Auburn with me. And I can remember telling Dr. Wilson, um, you know, I know two girls who went to Auburn with me who had this cancer. And he was like, there's no way. There's no way. He told me how rare this was. And I was like, no, both of them had their eye removed. And um, and I, they were both around my age. And, um, so anyway, at that time, I remember, I mean, literally the day I was diagnosed, I called Allison Allred and, um, and called Julie Green is, is the other girl. And, and both of them really helped me walk through that time and told me what to expect. And so I'm one of those who I can't imagine going through this without knowing a soul. And there's so many people out there that that's their experience um, and so I'm thankful for people like you and for a cure insight and, you know, just having the resources available to people. Because when I got online, I didn't find anything. I didn't know what to look up, but I didn't find anything. And these people were just very instrumental in my life at that time. I love that. You were talking about how when you developed, like you discovered the Auburn cluster and how just mm-hmm. finding people who were in this with you was so, so helpful. Um, it was very helpful. I like, I'm the same way. I, I just, I mean, with everything in my life that I've ever gone through, postpartum depression, a miscarriage, like any of those kinds of things, I have thrived like with finding that community and just finding the people who 
also get it, you know, me too kind of feeling. Mm -hmm. And so I just feel like that community piece can be so, so healing. I just feel like it can be really helpful to know that you're not alone in this. Not alone. Um, And I, and I do know crazily enough, like I have seen, um, have seen some really crazy stories and I hope to have one or two of them come on and talk because they went through, they, they're 20 years out and Mm -hmm. they went through this, um, from my age. So like young mom, early to late twenties to then now they have kids in college, they're metastatic free, um, which I think is kind of a given considering how far they are out, but they never knew anyone until this last year when they found my page on Instagram somehow. So anyway, I just, I feel like that community piece is such an important piece. Uh, I know that maybe not everybody feels like they need it, but I feel like it never, it never seems like it hurts to find people who get it. No, I think if anything, um, there's a lot. One of the things I've learned with this is that you have to be educated and be an advocate for yourself. Um, and and I do want to talk about that a little bit. I don't know if this is a good time to go into no, that. No, go ahead. Be fine. So um, because, you know, after I was diagnosed, you know, I lived in Memphis. And, um, and after I had my eye removed, I did follow up with Dr. Wilson. But he sent me on to an ocular oncologist. I mean, not an ocular oncologist, just a regular oncologist. And um, I actually shopped around a little bit. He sent me to you know, a great doctor in Memphis who had maybe seen 12 people in his whole career. And so really, the oncologists out there um, don't know a whole lot about this. And he recognized that his role in this was really to cover my surveillance. And some people don't even realize what surveillance should be and should, you know, whatever. So for me, being class two, it was recommended, you know, for every four months. But interestingly, you would think that like I would get a call from the oncologist saying, okay, it's time for you you to schedule your test. But even very early on, um, even though he was a great doctor, and this also happened to me here in Auburn, um, I would have to call them and say, okay, it's time for me to schedule my scans. And I've I've talked to people over the years today who have been like, you know, I, I didn't follow up with my scans because my doctor didn't call me. And that's where I want to say, please just know that you you need to be the one to be an advocate for yourself. Um, and to know what type of scans you probably need that not every doctor understands what, what kind of scans that we need to have. And so, um, for me, I had initially just a CAT scans of my abdomen and an x-ray of my lungs because, you know, it travels through the bloodstream to our liver most of the time. So that's what I had until I moved to Auburn. Um, and we'll probably get into this, but I had eaten lunch, had eaten lunch with Dr. Orloff. Um, in New York one day, and and she and I were talking about surveillance, and she suggested that I start doing an MRI. And with being class two, I probably should have done that all along. And so I switched to MRIs instead of CAT scans. And for me personally, that was the better option. But I still had to call my doctor and say, hey, it's time for my scans. And a lot of people don't do that. And then I had the other reason I mentioned that is there are a lot of people, too, who, if they were diagnosed a long time ago, like you were just talking about, they um, they think, oh, you know, I'm five years. You always hear with cancer when you're five years out, you're probably good. So some people have the misconception um, and I'm, I hate I hate this for me. But, you know, um, if I would have had that that thought of five years out, I'm fine. Um, I don't have to worry about surveillance or whatever. Um, we we could be having a very different discussion or maybe not even discussing anything right now because I went eight years, you know, without metastasis. And, um, and it was found, obviously, um, during surveillance. So I tell people, 
just because you've been 10 years out or even 12 years out or 15 years out, um, I would still, I would still follow up with surveillance. I would not miss a scan is my personal feeling about it. What about you? I mean, how often do you get your scans? So I am kind of a little bit different, I think, of a case just because um, of maybe where where things are in the recommended scan protocol. Like now that I've started my journey, I'm a little over a year out. Um, but initially when I first was diagnosed my uh, and my biopsy came back, I came back class two, preem positive, and um, my my ocular oncologist immediately recommended me to uh, a uveal melanoma specialist here in the Valley in Arizona. And um, his name is uh, Dr. Moser. He actually spoke in the event, I believe in the, in the um, track one of the, I believe event that we had a couple weekends ago. So he is my regular local oncologist, but because of my biopsy, because of where I live kind of, and just also some of the availability of the adjuvant trials, um, I actually have my scans monitored directly by Dr. Sato out in Philadelphia. Oh, that's um, right. I saw you there recently. So, yeah. yeah. So he monitors me every three months and he orders those, but I have to, I mean, I have the orders, but I have to set them all up because I have to get them done locally here and then basically bring a disc to him. So I get scans right now every three months. I'm in the beginning of year two, I think. Mm-hmm. Um, and those, those scans happen every three months per his protocol recommendations Right. Uh, as far as I understand, he's not planning to move me out to six months until at least five years. Exactly. And, and obviously that, that obviously depends on, well, I, I hope that it doesn't change and I'm going to push for it not to change because I feel like, you know, just because I get to the three year mark and everything's fine, doesn't mean that everything is fine. <laughs> so I want those scams and I am, I'm with you there on the whole adv- advocating or advocating, um, advocating for, getting your scans regularly and mm-hmm. not letting a doctor, I don't, I don't see Sato or Orloff or any of the experienced uveal melanoma experts. I don't see them ever saying, Oh yeah, you're fine. It's only been three years, yeah. but you're fine. But for those of you maybe listening who don't have a doctor who is as experienced in uveal melanoma, you need to get your scans. Don't give up on the scans. We, we all know they're uncomfortable. Um, we don't like them. We don't like the constant reminder and like the living in three month increments. It's not fun. But, um, but it is important because just like with, just like with eyes, I mean, it's early detection is absolutely key as far as treatment can go. I mean, I think, I think more so with eyes than with, with metastatic disease, um, as far as I'm understanding, because I know with metastatic disease, there's still really, it's just still much more of an unknown field. Um, Mm -hmm. and they're, they're working to remedy that and to rectify that, but you know, it is still, it is still in the works. But yeah, I, I really hope that things continue to improve and look better for lots and lots and lots of patients who have, have had it spread. Um, yeah. Again, just the education part of things. Two things I was going to say about that. One, I, there was a, a lady that um, she had gone 10 years. And again, it, she they didn't have the castle testing when she um, was initially diagnosed. And uh, she wasn't having any scans at all. And she was having um, pains in her abdomen and things like that. And by the time they did finally go in, of course, her, her liver, it had actually spread all over the place. And she unfortunately did not live very long after that. But, um, again, my point is, is to, to not think that this is, um, a one and done type of you're treated and you're, I hate to say it like this, that you're okay. Um, 
And I, I just want to encourage people to continue with that surveillance, regardless how, how far out you are, even if it's just a once a year thing. And the other thing I was going to say is I did not know that um, if you are having an MRI, that you should use Eavist as the contrast. And that was another thing, just education. Um, I remember talking to Dr. Orloff when I was diagnosed, it ends up that probably if I had used Eavis in the scan six months prior, they may have actually found the tumors when they were much smaller. Um, I'm one of those who I have kind of the, I have over a hundred tumors in my, in my liver now, but eight of them are measurable and mm -hmm. they probably could have been seen the measurable ones six months prior had I been using the correct contrast or the right contrast. So definitely an important thing then to, you know, if you are having your scans ordered by a doctor who doesn't know as much about uveal melanoma to do your research and to, to basically go to the experts, um, like Dr. Sato, Dr. Orloff, their protocol seems to be the most widely accepted protocol and to push for those kinds of things. Scans every three months, if you're class two, um, they have a specific scan protocol that I believe yeah. I have sent. And you can to just them. ask him for it. And yeah. yeah, you can email their, you can email Thomas Jefferson, um, Kidney Kimmel Cancer Center and ask them for their scan protocol for uveal melanoma and ocular melanoma patients. And they will give it That's to you. I do have the file somewhere and I will make, um, it's on my to-do list of many, many things. Um, I have a plan to make a file, basically like a file list that everybody can access that we'll have to our website. Uh, so that is one of the things that I plan on having on our website as a click it and you can just see it because I'm I feel so like some people want that. Mm -hmm. um, I appreciate that so much. We just want all those resources in one place. So, I mean, seriously, Ashley, if you have things, send them over and I will just mm -hmm. put them all in one place. Yeah. Um, and as far as, so, okay, you mentioned, I know this was kind of going back to the very beginning. And then after this, I want to kind of move forward to present, right. um, mm -hmm. but you mentioned that your eye exam, as far as getting this free eye exam done at vision works and target that until that point, you had never had an eye exam except for in elementary school. That's so sad, but yes, that's correct. <laughs> okay, but had, it's also um, normal I, in normal. our society. Mm -hmm. It's very normally accepted that if you don't need glasses and there's nothing wrong with your eyesight, you don't get seen regularly. And yeah. that's a problem for sure. Right. And you know what else is I, um, I'm not fair skin. I, I tan well. I don't, I never did a tanning bed. Um, I, I, I'm, I didn't have symptoms except for every now and then, every now and then when I was on the computer, I'd have blurry vision and I was 42. So I thought, oh, I'm just, you know, I just need readers or something like that. <laughs> so I just wasn't taking any Not of the always getting older. Yes, I know. I didn't have the flashes of light that some people have and that kind of thing. Um, and so it was more of, of just the blurry vision. And I should have not just gone and bought readers at the grocery store like I did. I should have had an eye exam. So definitely that. And I think the other thing is right now, um, I'm not sure how it is in Arizona, but there's a lot of places that in order for you to get a dilated eye exam, you have to pay $25 more, and um, which I it's think like is just a unfortunate. Yes, it's a I huge know. deterrent. It is. And then people it's are silly. like, you know, it's only twenty five dollars. Exactly. But I hate that that's even an issue. I think I probably would have been like, I don't know that I need that. And they take the pictures now and even um, the different. But I it's an opt in. It's yes. But even then, the pictures are not the camera that they're using. They can leave out the small portion 
that's that that just doesn't come in the view. It's just like how my hand is going out of view. It doesn't come in the view of what yeah. they need to see. So really having a dilated eye exam for those who are kind of sitting on the fence, whether they should do that or not, that's that's really what we need to to stress, to ha- keep keep stressing that, to have that dilated eye exam. Yeah. Oh, so those of you who are um, watching and are following us on Instagram, um, keep sharing our videos and our reels and things that we have. Mm-hmm. We have some really cool news. We actually went viral. And that means that we had a reel that I did. I just basically just did a reel showing, hey, get your eyes dilated. And I said, why? Mm-hmm. I said, who should do it? And I said that you should do it every year because this is just like a woman's well check or a general health well check, mm-hmm. um, a mm-hmm. skin check every year. This should be standard protocol. And right. the only way that it's going to become standard protocol is if we petition for that and we ask for that. If we mm-hmm. go in for that and basically make the medical community make it known in the medical community, this is what we want to be standard of care. So those of you who you know have shared that video, I just want to shout you out. Thank you so much for sharing that video because we are currently at 450,000 views wow, on awesome. a five second clip that says get dilated. So mm. that's 450,000 people who have now got that in their head. Oh, I should get my eyes checked because mm-hmm. eye cancer is actually a real thing. Yeah. Um, So I'm just thrilled with that. I would love to see that reel get up to a million views. So if you're listening, when you get off this video, go share it because the more shares that it gets, the more Instagram basically says, everybody watch, everybody watch. (laughs) But we've talked about kind of everything up to this point. Um, Obviously not everything. I'm sure there were lots of things that you've adjusted to lots of moments. Um, And I do want to talk sharing. I wouldn't mind sharing before we talk about the, what I'm doing right now just a very synopsis of the Auburn group just real oh, quick. Yes. Because that would people be good. Do I was going to ask about that. Yeah. So I will say, you know, in the beginning, like I said, I mentioned that I knew the two girls who went to school with me, um, Julie and, and Allison. And then Allison was being treated at Thomas Jefferson for liver meds at the time I was diagnosed. Uh, she told Dr. Orloff about, about me. Um, they reached out and said, can we just kind of keep up with you? Um, the people from Thomas Jefferson. And so they did. And then when I moved to Auburn, I got a, a Facebook message from Mark McWilliams, a friend of his, and Mark was uh, had been in Auburn at the same time I was there, was an architecture student, had been in treatment at Philadelphia, um, and had just passed away from, from liver metastasis. Um, at the time he was being treated there, there was another gentleman also being treated in Philadelphia, and he was associated with Auburn, and so Mark's family was like, I think something's going on there. So that made two men that we knew of and three women. And so we, we posted a picture of my eye. If you, if you actually Google ocular melanoma, my eye will come up on your screen somewhere because you could see the tumor in my eye and it had little tendrils, little dots around my, my pupil. Anyway, we shared that post um, on Facebook, me and Allison and Julie, just asking, is anybody else associated with Auburn who had this cancer? And, and at the time, over about a year period, we had two dozen people, you know, 24 people. Then about a year later, it was 36 people. Um, Dr. Sato reached out to us and said, can we come down there? Can me and a team of people, uh, he brought his son, Marlena, um, Orloff, uh, John Castles, and, um, they came down to Auburn and met with any of us that wanted to meet. And so uh, about 30 something people and their families came, the community kind of came and they did a little educational seminar. They toured Auburn, but they're their goal was to try to do some research because they also had, they were doing research at the time in Huntersville, North Carolina. And, um, and so anyway, they, they were very interested. 
they asked if we would start a Facebook page, which we did, um, to really be able to communicate with everybody. It was just an easy way to do it. Well, to make a long story short, people in um, New York uh, at CBS This Morning Show saw our Facebook page. Um, and because one of the producers had a friend that was diagnosed in Sweden or something like that, and they couldn't find out any information, but they found our page, saw our story, saw the video that we shared, and asked if they could come do a story on us. They went to Philadelphia, interviewed people there, met Lori Lee, who was the fourth girl that people see, um, invited her to Auburn. We all met. And that's how kind of this national attention happened was CBS This Morning did a show when they aired it. The Today Show saw it, asked if we would interview the next day. It was on NBC Nightly News, Today Show. Um, but their their goal, Danae, was not our goal. <laughs> their goal was to cast a negative light on Auburn. Our goal um, really became raising awareness, um, raising money for research, um, trying to see if there were other people associated with Auburn. So our goals were, were really two different things. And our story became very, unfortunately, sensationalized. It was a skewed view. It was only talking about the four girls. Um, it said that we all lived together. It was just a lot of misinformation. Um, the media but over, to do that a lot. <laughs> no. And then we got, we were very fortunate that we, um, we had a really good interview with People Magazine. And then the Dr. Oz show um, invited us to come. And even though... There were still things about that that was that that was kind of messed up. Our our goal was, and that's how I feel about this, and or any time that I'm interviewed locally or or whatever, is if one person could see what what you're doing, um, if 480 thousand people can see what you're doing, what you're talking about, and go get their eyes tested and dilated, um, then maybe we could we could help one person. Well, that's what ended up happening is um, after people saw the the People article and the Today Show and Dr. Oz, um, we had more people contact us. And now there's 54 people who have some type of association with Auburn, either went to school there or worked there or was the, the child of a professor there, that kind of a thing. Um, and ends up that in that group, um, over half of them are men. And most of the time they focus on all the women, but over half of them are men. And I think that's an interesting thing to point out, too. And just so people know, the other misconception is that, you know, we lived on campus and it was all these girls and, and whatnot. But really, um, only eight of the 54 lived on campus. Um, so we really don't know. We've, we've had research and we raised a lot of money, which was also something that helped with us being um, getting the national attention and being on TV and things. A lot of money was raised and we were able to do um a geospatial analysis that Auburn actually paid for, the university paid for. They did an amazing job with that. Um, John Castles is who did that um, that assessment. And then we raised enough money to do a genetic test that's being done now. And um, that's blood sampling that I think is really going to help the ocular melanoma community more that's so amazing. than us figuring out. Yeah. So we are very excited to have all that done. Uh, like you said in the very beginning, we, we don't know. We've gotten the results back from John Castles, but it's a lot of information to sift through. And mm -hmm. so we don't know if there's something that connects us all. They, they haven't said yes or no yet. Um, they've had the information for about a year, but still when COVID hit, um, some of this was put on the back burner. And so now they're starting to look into it a little bit more. Um, I definitely don't think the university... Um, knows anything or is hiding anything because they've been so helpful more than people realize um, yeah. they've been helpful in trying to figure stuff out. 
Um, I don't have concerns about it. I have two children that went to Auburn. And so I don't have any concerns about you, And you live in Auburn now, I live right? in Auburn, Georgia. <laughs> is, like, yes. You live in the area now. I do. I live in the area now. So all that to say, I think it's, um, it's, it's interesting that we have 36 people who, um, who actually went through the process of, of going through the interviews and answering all the questions and, and hopefully we've, unfortunately the four girls that were seen on TV a lot with, you know, both Allison and Lori Lee have passed away. Um, they, they passed away the same year. Um, and so, and Julie lives in Birmingham and she's doing really well. Um, she was diagnosed when she was 27 and she's just a year younger than I am and I'm 51. So, um, so she's doing really well, but that's kind of just a very brief kind of where we are with that. I know that they're looking still at the Huntersville, um, the group, neither one of us meet the definition of a cluster that definition is is very difficult to to meet, but we mm-hmm. we do consider our our group uh, a unique grouping of people, and, yeah, um, sure. and we haven't stopped trying to figure out what's going on there. Um, it's just can be all uh, it can be very time consuming to to yeah. focus on that. So um, and it's but not anyway. something that the research has yielded a definitive. This is the connection yeah. yet. So okay. So those of you who came thinking that I I said that it was a cluster, so I should fix that later. But not officially a cluster. Right. Just trying to research yeah, and find grouping. the find if there is a link between the right. grouping. Um, that's correct. Okay. Well, thank you so much for clarifying that. Yeah. And I I feel like that's important too, just to to rectify some of what maybe sensational news and media did to try to maybe diminish the reputation of a university that is, is doing everything they can to try and figure out if there is any connection that they, you know, can help with. And they're doing a lot of, a lot of things to try and fix that. Mm -hmm. But I love what you said about how your main goal in just trying to talk to the news, talk to people magazine, get on the Oz show was let's, let's just make sure one other person gets their eyes dilated. Like it just really comes down to that. Just one other person, like, and that one person matters. Like that's true. I can't tell you how many people. I mean, I've probably at least a dozen that just contacted me personally after seeing the Dr. Oz show in particular, who did go get a test, were di- were diagnosed with ocular melanoma, um, and and it was just shocking to me how many people reached out and said, "I saw that," and that's that's what made me go get an, an eye exam. So we were thankful for that for sure, for sure. Well, that's crazy, and also. I think just it just speaks volumes to the work that you and um, your other friends that kind of got together and just started spreading awareness did. Um, okay, so I want to kind of shift gears. Let's focus mm-hmm. for the last little bit um, on your journey right now, because a, a year ago in October of 2020, correct, you were diagnosed with metastatic disease. Mm-hmm. Um, so yes, I was. In fact. Um, I had gone in just for regular scans, like I said, that I scheduled um, myself. And um, it had been six months. I had been on a six-month surveillance at that point. Um, and it was just a, uh, I did an MRI without EAVIST. Uh, I got a call, you know, yes, you need to come in and, and speak with the oncologist. And I never had had that where they, typically a nurse called me and said, everything looks fine. But this time it was the, you know, we need you and your husband to come in. I will say, and this is unusual, but I have um, a special relationship with with Marlena Orloff in that, you know, when we were doing all these um, interviews and stuff, she was with us a lot. And so, and she and I became friends over this eight-year period of time. And um, so I texted Marlena and said, I've got, I've got this 
possibility of, of bad news. I'm about to go see the doctor. And she said, you know, call me immediately, you know, send me pictures immediately. So sure enough, I was in there with my doctor, was able to send her pictures immediately. And um, when I got the bad news, and of course she um, really helped me navigate how to get to uh, Thomas Jefferson quickly and get my scans digitally sent. Um, my community hospital here was just very helpful in, in having all that done. So I got into Thomas Jefferson very quickly. Um, we decided after um, looking, like I said, it, my my liver looks like a buckshot. I mean, it's just innumerable tumors. And, and there's a lot of people that that's kind of what their liver looks like. But at the time, I had six measurable tumors. Um, we went ahead and, and went up to um, Philadelphia and decided to do immunoembolization because I had it on both right and left lobe. If you don't know how IE, that's what we call it, IE works. You do the right lobe one month, left lobe the next month. Dr. Gonzalez was my doctor, so I did that for eight months. So October through May, I had immunoembolization, um, only to find out that it wasn't working. In, in May of, of 2021, um, they said the tumors were, there were innumerable growth, uh, innumerable new tumors, um, rather, and then growth in, in all the tumors that were measurable. Back in the fall, I was very fortunate, though, um, the wisdom of these doctors at Thomas Jefferson, I just appreciate so much. They went ahead and tested me to see if I was HLA positive. And when they were going to biopsy the tumor to see was it was it truly metastatic or, you know, ocular melanoma or uveal melanoma, um, they went ahead and tested to see if I was praying positive with that biopsy. So I was very fortunate to have that done. That screening, I already knew. So when May came around and they told me that it wasn't working, um, the PRAME trial had, had progressed to where they were about to do a dose escalation. There were four spots open in the United States. Thomas Jefferson got one spot. And literally, I was told, this isn't working, but we've got a spot for the PRAME trial. Would you be interested? And I already knew the answer because I was able to. They educated me on PRAME way before May. So mm -hmm. I understood that when that, so you didn't that have option, to research, it was like, it was a, a decision that you had already made. Like if it became Basically available. So. Um, there were, there were some, the, some questions, of course, my husband, I had, I, I was friends with Summer Erica, who was the first person on Prame. The second person who was on Prame had, she died, the, mm -hmm. you know, who had the, the trial, but they, they discovered that it wasn't in relate. It wasn't related to the drug, the reason mm -hmm. that she passed away. And, but Summer was, was a friend of mine and she, um, unfortunately the frame trial had to stop. And after that, Summer passed away right after I was diagnosed with METS and it was devastating to me. Um, yeah. and so to see that they had to, they had to scale back, praying, start over with this dose escalation. And by the time it came to me, we were at, uh, the dose escalation was to 40 micrograms, which is what I started out at. Um, so I've been doing that 15 weeks. You go once a week um, to, to have this infusion. And um, the cool thing today about it is um, with my last scans that were just done, I did show a partial response. And I didn't know what that was. I didn't know how exciting that was. But evidently, um, with Prame, everybody that's on it has had a good response in that they've had stabilization of disease. One of the things that they will look at statistically is what they call overall survival 
or if you see it written in a, a journal, it may be OS. They'll talk about the OS, the overall survival. And the overall survival rate of people on Tebby um, and Prame had been extended. And so very positive results in terms of stabilization. But I was told that I was the first person to have a partial response, which meant you, I had a negative 34% growth, meaning I had shrinkage in tumors. The number of tumors that I had had decreased. And um, I, I want to say, ask Dr. Orloff, I think for it to be considered a partial response, you have to have a negative 20% or greater response. And I was the first person to do that. And so um, they're thinking 40 micrograms might be the sweet spot. And so right yeah. now, the there were seven cohorts of people on Prane. I'm in the seventh cohort. So, you know, the first group got the smallest micrograms. And then, you know, we each increased. So now, mm-hmm. if you're on the Prane trial, you can be increased to the 40 micrograms. And they just started um, an, a, an eighth cohort that's on 80 micrograms um, just to see... I think that's part of the dose escalation part of a trial is seeing what's um, how high they can go without yeah. it being too toxic. And so there are people on 80 micrograms now, but um, I don't have scans again until November 9th. But right now, um, right now it's going well is what I would say. It's going well. I just feel like crying. <laughs> I know it's such a big deal. It's such a big deal. And I, I completely bawled when I found out. Matter of fact, Taylor, who's one of the logistics person on um, the Prame trial, who takes care of all the details for me, she said that when she got the the report and she saw a partial response, she actually called the radiologist and said, we've never seen this. Like, are you sure? And she said that she just bawled, that she went running around to tell the team. Dr. Sato was so excited. <laughs> they yeah. were just themselves, they immediately, Marlena did a a PowerPoint presentation and send it to Immunicore talking about my response. Um, So it was, it was a huge, huge deal and very exciting to see. Um, And so not just stabilization, but shrinkage. So basically partial response means the tumors are shrinking and there's less of them. And it's it's obviously not a full response because full response would mean everything was gone, but you know, right. We're going to hope I did have there. one tumor. I was going to say, I did have one of the eight tumors that grew. Mm-hmm. And so I always am like, why does that happen? Why, 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 why do you have one to have goes, one that goes rogue? All of them go down, but one goes, yeah, one goes rogue. <laughs> yeah. Why, why that? But, um, but I'm, I'm very excited about that. And, and the fact that um, when, when people ask about, cause a lot of people have asked me, they've reached out and saying, you know, how, how do you get to be a part of this? And that's something mm-hmm. I wanted you and I to talk about. Um, to, to know if you're HLA positive is a simple blood test and you can be HLA positive. Like I have um, psoriasis um, on my skin, like my elbows and on my head. And uh, I talked to my rheumatologist about it and he said, well, I knew you were HLA positive, you know, 10 years ago, because yeah. if you have autoimmune issues, a lot of times you are HLA positive, but Prame, you can have a diagnosis or a biopsy rather of your eye and have Prame in your eye, but you may not have, Prame in the metastasis, which I think is interesting. I didn't know that. And so um, some people will say, well, when I did the biopsy, they didn't even check for Prame. Well, back when I had the biopsy of my eye, they didn't check for it. But um, so anybody out there who's like, you know, what are questions I need to ask my doctor um, if I'm having a a biopsy done, ask them to to check for Prame. And also ask just to have the blood test to see if you're HLA positive. 
And the reason that you want to know those things is because um, this is what I was told from the Immunicore who is, is doing the trials right now. They are, they are making drugs that are going to help the, um, the most people that they can help. And so oftentimes people who do have metastatic disease with uveal melanoma are HLA positive. Um, they're not always praying positive, but, but typically they're, most of them are HLA positive. So obviously the drug they're going to try to come up with is, is going to treat most of the people. Okay. But the cool thing is I also know that they, they are looking into drugs that are helping those who are not HLA positive. Um, so I don't want people to be disheartened out there who are like, I'm neither, I'm not praying more HLA and I've got metastasis. What's, what, what's in it, you know, who can help me? What's in it for me? Yeah, like, I know yeah, that they're really. looking, there's lots of options out there, but I do think if you are HLA and praying positive, um, there's there's some really, really cool things going on in, in the world of research, and, and that's pretty exciting. Mm-hmm. No, that is, I feel like that's just, I don't know, I guess I'm one of those people who like, you know, like the Facebook groups or the, the support groups and you, you read about people and they're sharing their scan news or they're, they're sharing, um, you know, that they just got diagnosed or whatever's happening in their journey. But then, you know, you get the occasional, um, and I think it's partly just related to what we focus on is what we see more of. Um, but, but I do know that when I notice one or two people who have posted that their, their scans came back and they had metastatic spread, um, that it, it can, it can feel really triggering. Like as someone who's, yeah. you know, kind of living in the living in between scans, basically, um, it can feel so triggering. So it's so nice to, I think just to, to take those with a grain of salt and also recognize, yes, there's people that are being diagnosed because this is the nature of this, this cancer. Yeah. But at the same time, there's so much happening right now. And I think it's that the, that is such an exciting piece of the time that we It'll live be in exciting. now. It can be exciting and discouraging at the same time. Yes. I feel like it's kind of a mix of right. Yeah. The number of people who want to be on this trial is significant. Mm -hmm. And yet the frustrating thing that we're having is for Prame in particular, it's not just for uveal melanoma. Like where Tebby was pretty much just uveal melanoma. Mm -hmm. Prame is for other cancers as well. And so when these spots come open, the slots come open, they fill up very quickly. And yeah. so that's why I'm, I'm wanting to get this message out that if you're being treated at Thomas Jefferson or at Vanderbilt or out in California or at MD Anderson and, and you are praying positive, let your doctor know if you have a spot, I want it. I, yeah, I want sure. it. And I was very um, overt. <laughs> I was very um, loud saying, you know, Dr. Sato, if, if a spot comes open and I qualify, you know, they're, they're like, you don't want to get on the trial if what you're doing is working. So if IE was working, I would have kept on doing IE. Yeah. But, but at the same time, you working, wanted them yeah. to know. Yeah. I wanted them to know I'm ready. If when, you know, if you have a spot, please let me know. And so, um, but anyway, that can be very frustrating for people who. Yeah. Because there's limited spot spots, especially. And there's not one. So I do have a question just maybe so you can clarify. I know we've talked a little bit about Tebby, which is the HLA positive. You have to be HLA positive to go on Tebby. Mm-hmm. Um, and Tebby is a newer. Um, it's the newer, FDA drug coming out. It's the, in yes. It's coming in. It's coming to FDA approval in 2022, I believe in February or March. Um, unless they push it back because the FDA does stuff like that. But that one is HLA positive only. Now, how does the prime qualification work? Do you have to just be be prime positive? You have to be both. Okay. So 
I feel like, I feel like I feel that again, that, you know, that mix of like, okay, well, this is hopeful, but also like, oh, jab, because I am prime positive, yeah. but I'm not HLA one or HLA. Um, my blood test came back negative for HLA positive. Gotcha. So, I mean, for me personally, and for, I know other people, um, I know other people mm-hmm. who are class two and who are HLA negative. Um, and like you said, that can be, it can be encouraging to hear your good news, but also it just makes me slightly more anxious that like, please come up with something that will work for the rest of us. Right. Um, and you know what I found today is like, I think with the Prame, I bet, and then this is just me being optimistic, but with, um, with Immunocore knowing basically the way it was described to me is the reason that Prame, this Prame trial is working is uh, Dr. Orloff was saying like, if this is your cancer, it's like your immune system goes by your cancer and doesn't even recognize it. It just goes on by. But now what they're doing is they're targeting if you have Prame on your cancer cells. And mm-hmm. when your immune system comes by, that Prame acts as a magnet to draw over you, your immune system to attack it. So I'm thinking if they know that it's Prame, that they're going to be able to come up with something for those HLA negative people. It's, yeah. it's they just Prame have to find the is, link. Right. They have to find the link and yeah. the T cell receptors and all those things that I don't understand. Which but, we know um, that they're doing. They're doing as much research okay, as they possibly can. They are all over it. They are all over it as quickly as they can. I, I mean, we've, I feel like I've talked with other patients about this too, but it, I feel like it comes down to just being able to practice and learn how to sit with the uncertainty that none of us yes. like. None of us like you, you know, have I, tons I, of uncertainty yeah. now still, <laughs> even, even though you have good news, you still have uncertainty that you have to confront every day. And that's how, I guess, getting back to what you said in the beginning, we all deal with things differently with how we, we, um, cope with all this. And mm-hmm. for me personally, um, it is, it, it is a faith issue for me. I, I do have a very strong personality and a very optimistic personality. And I'm definitely one who's going to be like, don't tell me it can't be done because I'm going to, you know, I can get it done. But I do think, you know, the way that I cope with it, too, is um, that keeps me from being so anxious about it does have to do with my faith and just knowing I just am one of those who I, I believe that God has a plan for my life. And he has a purpose and he's written out my days before I was born. And I don't have a fear of what's going to happen afterwards. I, I don't want to die, but I'm also just living every day. I and mean, if you watch me, there are people who are like, you know, how are you feeling? How do you feel in praying? Because I see you like going all over the world. <laughs> it's like I'm doing all kinds of stuff, but there's a part of me, the silver lining to this. And I'm sure you're living this way now today as I watch you on, on social media, the silver lining to it is not taking anything for granted, you know, forgiving when you need to forgive, loving well, living well, um, being intentional. I'm extremely intentional with my family, with my friends. When I do go out of town, when I meet people, um, being given the opportunities to, to, take my daughter to New York for her birthday. Um, something, something like that. I mean, I would have never done that before if I'm honest with you, but I'm just very intentional with making sure that, um, that I'm living well and and doing the best that I can. And I don't, I will tell you that I don't feel well, um, for at least two days after treatment. I have treatment. I, I fly to Philly on Sunday, Monday, I have treatment Tuesday, Wednesday, I'm toast Thursdays. I'm doing pretty good Friday. I'm okay. I need to turn around on Sunday and go back through it again. Well, and, I'm glad um, we caught you on an upswing today. Yes, it's a but, good day today. I mean, Today's so much, day. so much love for just mm. the journey and how it feels because I can't even imagine yeah. that. Um, I'm just on it's a, a clinical trial that's adjuvant, and so I take medication every other day right now uh, mm-hmm. with the with right. Sato and Orloff's adjuvant trial with uh, Sutent and VPA, and 
every other day I'm just, I'm wiped. Yeah. Um, but I'm, I'm close to the end. So like silver lining, right? Yeah. Um, I love that you're doing that. Cause I, I didn't know even stuff like that was available. Yeah. I feel like um, I've, I've got to have somebody interview me. <laughs> yes, exactly. Um, I think I would can't interview myself. Oh, yeah. You you, we should schedule that. Okay. Well, mm-hmm. I wanted to just, as we get to the end, I wanted to, um, kind of draw attention. You shared a post on Facebook with a video that kind of just shared your, um, your journey thus far, uh, especially this last year, um, mm-hmm. with stage four metastatic uveal melanoma. And you just talked about journaling on Facebook. And, um, one of the big things that you talked about was, um, Oh, where did it go? You said something about, um, near life experiences, how sometimes oh, we talk that. about near death experiences. <laughs> yeah. like we talk about I, like, Oh, like, like I, I was almost in a car accident disclaimer. Um, uh, yeah, that was just, I can't, night driving is not so great, but I have choir practice and I was almost in a car accident a week ago and, mm-hmm. and it, it could have been really bad, but it was a very, very near miss. Um, that was a near death or near, you know, near accident experience. So you yeah. talked about though near life experiences. So mm-hmm. kind of explain what that means. So yeah, I did. I stole that from Dustin. Um, no, from, um, Aaron Davis and Aaron was speaking. He, he got an award in 2017, um, the wings of hope award. And he recently posted or his daughter posted, um, I think it was his daughter, uh, posted his speech. And that came from there. I, I saw that and I thought, I've never heard that term before and I loved it. And it's just basically, if you're not careful, um, you're going to miss those near life experiences. And he talked about how, you know, you might have that child, like in your case today, that they just want one more bedtime story. And you're just like, I'm just so tired. I just want to go downstairs and have my time. But just being able to read that one, that one more bedtime story or, you know, to, um, maybe you're invited to something, but you're just like, I just don't know that I'm, I just want to stay in tonight. You know, why not go? Why, why miss that experience? And I mean, within reason, you know what I'm saying? And I think for me, um, I look for those near life experiences. Um, I have this like really unique opportunity right now. Every time I go to Philly, every Sunday night, I eat at the same restaurant because I've met the same people. It's like home to me. Like they, they know I'm coming, they go ahead and play in a table for me. And I saw this lady sitting by herself every time I ate there, every Sunday she was by herself. And so I went over and met her. Um, her name's Miss D. She's absolutely delightful. And I started inviting her to eat dinner with me every Sunday. And every Sunday I bring a different person. I have a different friend come with me or I have three sisters and my sisters, my sister-in-laws have come. My, my children have come with me. And, um, and I'm so excited because now people are also getting to meet Miss D and she's eating with us. But it's those near life experiences of, of that you don't want to miss. Um, you don't want to take things for granted. Like I said, you want to be just intentional um, so that we don't miss those things that can be just really special. And they could be so simple. They don't have to be big. It's just, you know, what about that person that you, you know, you're pumping your gas and they're standing across from you and, and just being able to to speak to them and, and encourage yeah. other people and have those relational type of things that sometimes we wouldn't necessarily have. We just don't want to miss those near life experiences. No, I mm. love that. Um, mm-hmm. In my, like the last few years, um, I have kind of defined some of those as like, like looking for pockets of joy. Um, yes. Like looking for those. And because Brene Brown talks about this all the time. She talks about how so many people live life looking for the big things, 
They're waiting, Mm -hmm. waiting for the big, awesome thing to happen in their life that just makes their life better. Mm -hmm. And they're missing all of these little, she calls them twinkle lights, but you're, you're, you're missing. If you're looking for the big light and the big bam in your life, Mm -hmm. you're missing the tiny moments. The ones that really, when you, when you add them all together, all those little twinkle lights make, you know, a whole Christmas tree, or they light up the entire Mm -hmm. room with these twinkle lights of these tiny little moments. They're just pockets Mm -hmm. of joy. And there are moments that I, uh, they're, they're those near life experiences, those ones Mm -hmm. that you have to choose to be present with, like you said. Um, and that is like, I mean, you, you hit the nail on the head with what I do, but my kids at bedtime can be, I mean, they're, they're eight and five and a half and two, and they are, they're in the, they're in the, the, the whole realm of FOMO is a thing for them. They don't want to miss anything. And so they're just like, can you please meet me, you know, sing me one more song or read me not like one more book. And I, I have, I have just kind of tried my best to, like you said, just make it a practice that I look at that as a, as a moment that I don't want to miss. Um, yeah. Well, and I think too, because you have, I can tell you have this kind of heart even to be doing what all you're doing, because I appreciate everything you do for Cure Inside and, um, and we appreciate you so much, but I was going to say, you know, just looking for ways to serve other people and, yeah. and to love and it can on be other at people. Home. It can, like mm-hmm. you said, it can be the, it could be the grocery store clerk. It could be the person yeah. at the gas station who you just, you just wave and you just say, hi, it could mm-hmm. be on the freeway. Like I feel like just on the freeway or the highway when you're driving somewhere mm-hmm. and you just choose to let somebody in instead of, yeah. you know, speeding up to cut them off. Like, right. It's um, simple. It's, it's simple. just the little, little things. Mm-hmm. Um, but okay. those things, I, I feel like those are the things that make up life as we know it. So mm-hmm. we need well, more of it, especially yeah, after the it. past couple of years, we definitely Agreed. need more of it. Agreed. Okay. Well, um, I need to go and get yes. my kiddos picked up, but I did want to end really quick with this, uh, because I've been trying to do this with every interview. I know this is kind of throwing you on the, on the spot, but do you happen to have a song right now that if you listen to this song, it just... It's just a really uplifting song. It could be one from church or just, you know, yeah. Imagine Dragons or whatever. Well, it's kind of funny. Um, I So I'm an 80s girl. So uh, there, um, I'm, my genre of music is all over the place. I could listen to Guns N' Roses one day and be singing my heart out. Um, the next day I might be listening to Bruno Mars, 24 Karat Gold, and just have that kind of, you know, jazzy little step in me. Um, I think I love me some JT and Chris Stapleton and we'll listen to them. Um, because I, I like performers. I like people who, who perform like Bruno Mars and JT, Justin Timberlake. But, um, I am one who I do share a lot of praise songs, like on my Facebook page, because I, I have this mentality that of, um, of God fighting my battles for me. And, and that sometimes these praise songs are going to be those ones that I can kind of help me focus on, on him and, and, and being encouraged rather than, than letting Satan discourage me with what all I'm going through. And so, um, I do, I've got, you know, run to the father. That's a, um, a Christian song that I just, I love, um, the blessing by Carrie Job. And, and I listen to that a, a lot, um, of just me being able to, to just stop and, and, um, again, focus on things that are positive. I, I love music. So I, um, I saw that question on there. I didn't, I didn't know you were going to ask it today, but I, I did think, you know, I'm one of those who I, I like a little jaunty tune that I can kind of shake around to <laughs> that kind of keeps me, you know, that keeps me going. And, um, but definitely those, those songs of worship really seem to be the ones that kind of 
help me just help me deal you. with the stress of it. Yes. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I love that. Well, thank you for sharing those and I'll make sure yes. that I got those spelled right and we can add those into the show notes so people can go and <laughs> listen right. to those. Yes. Um, yes. Mm-hmm. Well, actually I can't thank you enough. I feel like we can't possibly have had enough time. So we may have to have you back for part two um, in the next six months or so as you are going through more of this trial and kind of understanding more of what's happening with the Prime trial for you. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. I feel like that would be kind of cool. So maybe we can kind of toy with that idea in the calendar. Um, but we're just grateful that you were willing to be here. And well, I'm, I'm so thankful. I'm so thankful for you. I'm so thankful for this group and encourage people that if you, if you haven't been on the, um, the support group, uh, I don't get to come on there every Tuesday because I'm traveling home on that day. But that support group has been um, very encouraging and very educational. I think if, if y'all can watch a cure insight, um, and then, you know, any way that you can, anybody that's watching this with ocular melanoma, if you have any questions, I just want people to know they can send me a private message. I'm an open book. I would love for people to just kind of follow my journey. I have a separate little page that my sisters came up with. It's got a silly name. It's called Ashley's I Loveys. Um, and if you just don't want to keep up with me and my family on Facebook, <laughs> but just my ocular melanoma journal, I mean, journey. You can go to Ashley's I Loveys for that. And it's just my, it's just the ocular melanoma stuff and not my kids going well, to homecoming. <laughs> I mean, your kids going to homecoming is definitely one it's of those awesome things. It's mm-hmm. super fun. Yeah. Um, well, thank you. Okay. So Ashley's I Loveys is where you can find her ocular mm-hmm. melanoma journey and her uveal melanoma journey as she has yes. been treated with for the Prime trial. Um, Ashley's Loveys, is it L O or L V? It's L O V E Y S. Ashley's I Loveys. So. Ashley's I love ease. I'm just going to write that down, put that in the show notes too. Okay. Well, oh my goodness. This is, thank you for your time today. Such an amazing, such an amazing time. So thank you so much. Um, and we will talk to you again soon. I'm sure. Thank you so much for joining us today on the, I believe podcast please make sure to subscribe. And if you're so inclined, send this episode over to friends, family, and share on your social media to help spread awareness around OM. Feel free to follow us on Facebook or on Instagram at Acure Insight. Thanks so much and have a wonderful day.